All right, we um, are continuing a uh, really, really fun series, at least it's fun for me, on uh, Jesus. And what does it mean? What does it mean to be the kind of people that embody the way of Jesus? So we've been talking for the last few Sundays about what Jesus did. We've talked about the ways in which he is modeled, um, what it means for us to live uh, as, in a way of being, being like Jesus and copying him. And uh, for this morning, what I want to do is turn to a particular text that I think is a bit more uh, obscure, a text that probably is often overlooked in the scriptures, one that maybe even you've perhaps been uh, tempted in some way to bypass, to look over, uh, to just kind of move along. And um, specifically, uh, it's found in three particular places in the Gospels. If you would, turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 19. And uh, what we're going to do is look for a few moments at the text where Jesus welcomes the children. He invites the children to come to him. And I want to read it uh, in all three of its renderings in the Gospels, starting in Matthew. It says in verse 13, Then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. If you turn over to Mark uh, chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 13, we also have another, uh, another rendering of this passage. It says this, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And then in Luke uh, chapter 18, we see it again, starting in verse 15. It says this, Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now this is a section of scripture that I think the church has often overlooked, bypassed in light of many other captivating stories in the Gospels. But what's interesting, at least to me, is the fact that this story came up in three of our four Gospels, that it came up again and again and again. So there has to be some reason or something specific that the readers wanted us to gather in light of what the text was saying. And I think what you have here are a couple different things at play. First of all, you have this uh, a real clear illustration, a clear teaching from Christ that it is the innocent, the humble, the childlike, the least of these, the ones that are looked down upon by society that are welcomed, that they've been invited. The scriptures say blessed are the broken, blessed are the poor, uh, those that are marginalized, the lowly, the children, all those that get, get pushed to the side 
Christ is saying, no, 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 they, they are welcome. They're favored. They're loved. Bring them to me, right? It's really, in some ways, a teaching that your status does not win favor with the Almighty. It's your humility. It's your innocence. It's your weakness. At the same time, you have, as we look at the Scriptures, you have a whole other level of understanding what the text is doing. Uh, this text, as many of you probably noticed, is juxtaposed with the story of the rich young ruler. So if you were to look at the text, uh, and some of you probably did, you saw right afterwards all three times that this passage is shared, all three times it's followed by the story of the rich young ruler. It really begins to serve in some ways as a contrast. You have the little, innocent, humble, those that that have nothing to offer the kingdom are the ones that are welcomed in. And then you have someone who says, I'm wealthy, I'm rich, I've obeyed all of the law, I'm faultless, look at me, welcome me into the kingdom. And at that point, he turns around and leaves sad. So you have this like real stark contrast between the rich young man and the children. And I think there's a ton that we could discuss and talk about over the next several weeks about all that could be learned from this particular passage, especially how it relates to this idea of um, humility and brokenness and innocence and vulnerability. Um, and while we could look at that, I want to kind of come at it from a little bit different angle this morning. Um, while I do think that a large focus is on the marginalized, it's on God's heart for the poor, it's on his desire for humility rather than pride, uh, it should at least beg us to ask the question, what about the kids? Why did he bring the kids anyway? What was all of that about? Why is this story even in there? What is the purpose of the kids being brought to Jesus? And it seems that the text indicates a motive. There's a reason why the kids are brought. It's really twofold. One, that they would be touched, but primarily to be touched so that they might be blessed. The text says that he blessed them and then went on his way. That he would bless them. That he would speak favor on them. Now there's a, a history with blessing. Specifically among the Jewish people, there is a long-standing history of blessing. A, a pattern of speaking beautiful things over children. Uh, there's Old Testament illustrations of it, of like a father passing on blessing to his children. You have Noah who blessed uh, Shem and Japheth. You had Jacob who passed on blessing to the next generation. Uh, there's like this pattern of fatherly benedictions pronounced on the heads of children. It's like laying your hands upon their head and declaring a benediction, a, a praise, a a blessing, a statement of goodwill uh, to the children. And you see this all throughout uh, the writings, all throughout the people of Israel. In fact, uh, even in the Talmud, you have this very customary tradition of the Jewish people bringing their children to be blessed by the elders at the synagogue or the tabernacle. They would, they would bring them, and there was even within the Jewish tradition a special holiday or a special day in which to bring your children to be blessed, and it was the day right before the Day of Atonement. And so parents would, would bring their children to the elders, to the, the priest, and say, hey, would you please bless my child? And in part of the desire in that was to say, the Day of Atonement is tomorrow. Would you pray 
a blessing over them, and would you ask that the atonement would be passed on to them so that they might be blessed and might be cared for by Christ. That's the idea, right? So now in a typical Jewish prayer of blessing, there were three primary things that were asked for. They would ask for a child that they would be famous in the law, that they would be faithful in marriage and abundant in good works. I mean, I love that. I mean, those are amazing, amazing things to be praying for, right? Famous in the law. The idea behind that would be that they had a passion for the scriptures, that they knew the teachings of Yahweh and that they would follow them, that they would desire to live into them. There's also the second one, that they would be faithful in marriage, that they would understand what it means to be a person of fidelity or covenant, to, to honor one another in marriage, to, to, to have this long-lasting bond, this faithfulness. There's also this third idea of abundant and good works, to, to be the kind of people that live their life for the other, that are so focused on others that good works pours out of them, that they're not worried about their own desires, their own reputation, their own needs, but rather they're the kind of person that is overflowing, abundantly overflowing in good works. That the way they work and move among people is beautiful. And so you have this, like, this amazing picture of blessing. That the people of Israel would pray this over their children. They would ask the elders to pray over their children. And it seemed that they understood the power of blessing. They understood the strength found in words. In fact, the book of Proverbs says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death, death and life are in the power of words. Now, I think most of us know that uh, death is quite evident, right? That words can bring death. Some of you still feel the scars that are left from something said of you or about you from years ago. Some of you are still hanging on to words your parents uttered that have left a lifelong wound. Something they said that cut you so deep. Maybe words that were, maybe names that were given to you in middle school. It always comes up in middle school, right? Names that were given in middle school Uh, that kind of followed you for a while, or a way in which people spoke ill of you that that it it was so damaging at the time. Those things just continue, it seems at times, to linger, right? The hurt, the pain. Uh, We understand that words cause death. Uh, But the scriptures also tell us that words can bring life, that they can bring healing to a soul, that they they can reinvigorate who we are, that your very words can in some way, like echo through eternity and speak blessing and hope and love into the life of other people. And I, I want to talk about just a couple of those ways this morning. I think the first one is simply this. Have you ever noticed that words can be prophetic? Have you ever noticed that words that people can utter uh, somehow... Um, they carve out for people a not yet realized future. Have you seen that happen before? Where, where someone says something that is like projecting an unknown future for someone else, and all of a sudden they begin to live into that future. 
uh, kind of like calling out things that they didn't see about themselves. Things that were so evident to you looking from the outside in, but they themselves were too either ashamed to know it or just, just weren't aware, and yet you're able to speak these like prophetic words over them that kind of reorient their life. You see this in the scriptures, I think. A couple occasions, even this week, popped out to me. One would be in the life of Peter. There's this uh, passage in the scripture where Jesus says this. He says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I mean, he's talking about Peter, right? Peter. And we kind of on the other side of history can look and go, oh yeah, Peter, the rock on whom the whole church was built. Makes a ton of sense. I'm guessing at that moment when he said, Peter, you're the rock. You're the one I'm going to build the church on. The other disciples are like, say what? I mean, Peter, are you kidding me? This guy puts his foot in his mouth all the time. He cuts off guys' ears, and then Jesus has to put him back on. Right? This is a guy that like, gets out to walk on water and starts to drown. This is a guy that like, doubted that, uh, that God was who he was. This is a guy like, fighting to be first in the kingdom. This is, this is a guy that at the time of Christ's greatest need, said that he didn't even know who Jesus was. He like denied him three times. This is the Peter on whom the church was built. And I think at that moment when Christ declared those words, they might have been a shock to him. They might have been this prophetic utterance that basically said, there's, there's a different future for you than the one you're currently living into. And you, see, you see this in the Old Testament too. My favorite illustration is Gideon. So Gideon, there's this moment where the text says that the angel of the Lord came and uh, Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I love this, right? So Gideon is in a wine press, typically for squishing grapes, right? It's kind of below ground. You stomp on them, and then there's this whole like system they have set up. But he's threshing wheat, which typically you do like above ground with a lot of wind, so that as you beat it and throw it in the air, all the stuff you don't want gets kind of blown away, and all the stuff you do lands. It's kind of like a filtering system. He is in a hole in the ground, beating out wheat so nobody will see him. He's hiding, he's scared. And into that context, this angel comes and goes, What's up, mighty warrior? Right? You're like the man. You are a man of valor. You're going to accomplish amazing things. And at that moment, he probably didn't feel that way. He probably was doubting. He was scared. If you read the context, he even, when he was chosen, is like, Yeah, not me. I think you got the wrong guy. My family is a really weak family, and of my family, I'm the weakest of the family. Look at me. That's what he said. And God's like, no, it's you. And then he's like, okay, well, great. There'll be like an army of a million people behind me, right? No, we'll give you 300 guys. Go for it, right? This is a guy that, that had no future, 
no projected idea of being a mighty warrior, and yet God walks into that situation and says to him, no, no, there's a, there's a, different, a different future for you. I remember that uh, same kind of thing happened for me. I, um, I was between, like, kind of entering into my senior year of high school. I had uh, been wanting, like I was pursuing biological science and sports medicine. That was what I wanted to go to college for. I thought it would be a great kind of path, something I was interested and excited in. And right along that same time, uh, I felt like God impressed on me that that's not what I was supposed to do. But instead, I was supposed to go into vocational ministry. And uh, I remember that being a bit of a jolt, like, okay, that's not what I had planned. That's not what I was thinking, but okay. So I started switching college choices, immediately started looking uh, elsewhere. And around that same time, I I grew up in a youth group that uh, didn't have a youth pastor. We had parent volunteers, and uh, it was a great little youth group. And uh, we had some of the most amazing parents, some just incredible men and women of faith. And uh, there's this one guy, his name is Mel Walker. Uh, Mel was 6'7", and just a strong dude, like really big, but he was like the most gentle human ever, right? So caring, so loving. And uh, I remember one time I went to visit him at his office, and uh, I knocked on the door, and I walked in, he's at work, and I knock on the door, and uh, he was meeting with someone, and he called me in anyway. And um, as that individual got up to leave, he's like, hey, I don't know if you know each other. Like, you need to meet Russ. This is Russ. Russ is going to be one of the, he's going to be the best youth pastor in the United States sometime. And I was like, me? Really? Now, I don't think I ever won that award. I'm not even sure there is an award for that. Um, but in that moment... He spoke things about me that I didn't even believe about myself. Like, there was no way. This was like a change of direction for me anyway. And to believe that someone who was amazing at what he did would communicate that about me was kind of like, wow. He was speaking words of blessing. He was prescribing in some ways a future for me. Uh, and, And it was prophetic in a sense. I think we have an opportunity with our words to to be prophetic, to reimagine a future for someone, uh, and to hear from the Spirit and then in- encourage them uh, with what's heard. Here's a, here's a second way. Uh, I believe that the words, that words can give life by highlighting the beauty and the image of God in others. What I mean by that is this, that words can kind of pick out or bring attention to the ways in which God is alive in someone else. They can, they can highlight or point out image-bearing qualities that that particular person possesses. They're a way of like speaking into or seeing something and just acknowledging it in another person. And part of me wonders if on that particular day when all the children are coming and they're all, they're all asking Jesus to bless their kids, if what they wanted in some way was for him simply to say, now, here's what I see in you. This is, this is the ways in which you demonstrate the image of God to everyone around you. And kind of highlighting each child in the ways in which they're unique and beautiful. And now, this would have been a very familiar thing for the Jewish people as well, right? And in fact, part of their weekly practice was 
uh, to gather and to have a time where they would give blessing over their family. So each uh, week at the beginning of Sabbath, there was a particular meal that would be had and the whole family would gather. And at the Sabbath meal, right before they kind of went into a, a time of ceasing creativity, ceasing activity, ceasing work, they would kind of sit down and it was like this reorienting time as a family around the table. They would eat and they would laugh. They would tell stories. But one of the things that they would always do is they would have a time of blessing. And usually the father would get up and he would speak a blessing over the children. And he would start with the girls and usual blessing for the girls would start off like this. May God make you like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah. And then it would go on to describe the ways in which they lived and the hopes and dreams for their kids. For the boys, they would say, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh, and then again would speak blessing on their boys. And then they would turn their attention to their wives, and they would begin to speak a blessing over their wives, and they would always speak the blessing found in Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. Now, here's what's a little bit interesting for us. The Hebrew reading of the scriptures in many ways is different than ours. So the way we approach the text in kind of modern evangelical Christianity is to take more of what would be considered like a scientific or textual approach. Uh, we read it a bit like, if we're honest, a bit like a manual, right? Like we, this is what it says, this is what we need to do, which is great. Uh, but it means that sometimes we're more interested in sentence structure, more interested in the context, breaking down the parts into smaller parts, the meanings. Uh, rather than like the spirit behind the text. What is the text communicating as a whole? So I'll use uh, Proverbs 31 because I think sometimes we get really excited um, in reading the scriptures and it's awesome and we're like, I totally figured this out. It's amazing. And yet we probably miss some really significant part that uh, kind of reorients the way that we understand the passage. So if you know Proverbs 31, it is the section of scripture, the latter part of the um, chapter is a section of scripture that highlights the woman of noble character, like the famous Proverbs 31 woman, right? Uh, it's probably better translated a woman of strength or of honor or of power. Uh, maybe you've heard it described as a woman of valor. That's probably a more accurate translation. And, uh, but our typical reading would go something like this. If you were to read through the text, you would say, uh, an excellent wife who can find, that's how it starts out, and then here are some of the statements that are written in there. Uh, she is like the ships of a merchant. She brings her food from afar. Uh, her lamp does not go out at night. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. She provides food for her house and makes her arms strong. And what we tend to do is we tend to break down the text and try to figure out, okay, how do we exemplify these qualities? How do we pattern our life after the teaching of Scripture? And... Um, which is a, an excellent thing to do. And so we start and we go, okay, she brings her food from afar. Like, does Safeway count? I mean, like, do I, should I skip Safeway and drive off to Costco? Is a little further away. Um, what does that even mean? Okay, uh, her lamp does not go out at night. What happens if she falls asleep before the kids do? Because that happens on a regular basis. What if, what if that happens? It seems like her lamp already went out then. Um, I don't think she even owns anything purple. 
So we probably need to get on that. Like start shopping and, and get some purple uh, items, linens, which seems weird, but we'll do it. Drapes or something, we'll, we'll put them on. Um, and does she provide food for the house? Yeah, she has strong arms. But you've got to be careful with that one, right? Because you can't be like, man, honey, your arms are huge. That's, that's oh, I mean, I don't mean huge, like thick. Oh, I don't mean thick. I mean, you see, problems all over if you start saying things like that, right? And so you, you start to go, okay, maybe it's not like a manual. Maybe there's points behind each of those ideas, but maybe there's like a way to understand it even in a more broad sense. Perhaps we've kind of missed the point. Well, one of the interesting things, for me at least, is that the English version of our Old Testament, what we've done is we've put a, a, like the books in an order. We've created an arrangement. And that arrangement goes, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. And then we add to that and we go into like the history, you know, First and Second Samuel, First and Chronicles, etc. Then we get into the poetic books, you know, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Song of Solomon. Then we get into, like, the major prophets, the minor prophets, Malachi, and 400 years, the New Testament, right? That's kind of the way we roll it out. Now, the Hebrew arrangement of the scriptures is much different. And some of you probably have known this for a really long time, but the Hebrews put the arrangement in a different order. And then when we like, got around to writing... Uh, into English and putting translations together, we reframed that order to make more sense. We did it either chronologically or by genre. So that's how we arranged it. But the Hebrew rendering or the arrangement of the scriptures is a little bit different. And uh, you might ask, well, what does that have to do anything? Thanks for asking that. We'll keep playing along with me for a moment. Proverbs 31 is interesting because it describes a woman of valor. And in Proverbs, it describes this woman, and then what you have is you have later on the book of Ruth. Now, if you're going by an English arrangement, it would go, you know, First Samuel, Samuel, 1 Samuel, Chronicles, Ruth, all of those would be like in the history segment. But in the Hebrew rendering or arrangement, what you have is the Psalms, you have Proverbs, they throw Ruth in with the poetic books, in with Song of Solomon, and all of that which means it's out of place chronologically and it's out of place in genre to like no-nos, right? But the Hebrew people placed it there. You might ask why. Here's why. Or at least here's why I assume they did. In Proverbs 31, it describes this woman of valor, right? That she's a woman of strength and of honor, of beauty. And it kind of lists what those qualities or that kind of person looks like. There's only three times that that exact phrase is used. It's used twice in Proverbs. It's used one other time in all of the scriptures. It's only used one other time to describe one woman. Any guesses on the woman? Ruth. And so Ruth follows Proverbs. Why? Because Ruth is the perfect living illustration of what Proverbs 31 is describing. Proverbs 31 is saying, an excellent wife who can find, she looks like this. And then Ruth... Ruth comes along and you go, yeah, that's what she looks like. That's how she lives. That's the way she orients her life. And so really, Proverbs 31 is a blessing. It's a way for us to read and and to speak into the lives of women in our community. It's not a a grocery list of things that a woman is supposed to do or to accomplish it someday before they can become a woman of valor. Rather, it's this description of the ways in which a woman or a wife is a person of honor 
and beauty and strength. So anytime that your wife or a woman you know acts in a way that provides blessing for their family, they're being a woman of strength. Anytime a woman uses her creativity to encourage or her gifts to provide or her care to enrich, she is being a woman of valor. And so each week, men would speak this blessing over their wives. They would, in front of their kids and other family members, they would stand up and they would speak this blessing over their wives, saying, these are the ways in which I see the image of God in you. These are the ways in which you are a woman of courage and of strength and of beauty and of power. They would say things like, you bring joy and peace and provision and strength and courage into our home, and I am so blessed. You amaze me in the ways that you care for children and provide for food and and take care of us, the ways that you bring hospitality to bear in this home and the ways that you are generous with all that you do. Those are the ways that I want to highlight in you. That's what I believe about you. You are amazing. Could you imagine weekly this being said over you? Weekly being affirmed in all of the gifts that are so present in you. To be blessed, to know that the body of Christ is bearing the image of God and you specifically are doing that. And so here's my encouragement. What if blessing others and what if Jesus' blessing of others was really supposed to be a model for us? What if that illustration of him caring for the children wasn't just about humility, wasn't just about welcoming them, um, but rather was also about saying, let me speak words over you. Let me bless who you are. I mean, what if we took it as our responsibility as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ to say prophetic words over other people? What if we spoke in ways that acknowledged what God is doing in each other in such a way that encouraged us to reorient our future, to live into all that someone saw in who we were? What if instead of pointing out obvious things like, hey, you got a new shirt, you look really good, or man, that that, uh, nice new car, or whatever it is that we kind of so easily point out, What if instead of that, we began to describe the ways in which the image of God is so evident in them? We just simply said to them, this is what I see in you, and it's so clear. I wonder if that would reorient the way we as the family of God operate. What would it change about us? So what if we practiced it today? What if at some point, men, we spoke words over women that we know. Words in Proverbs 31 that describe their courage and their valor. What if women, we were to pray Psalm 112 over men, talking about a, a righteous man and his commitment to the word and that he lives by honor. And What if those became words that we spoke? We don't have to wait till Father's Day. We could just say them this week at some point. And what if over our children and our brothers and sisters and our other family members sitting next to us, what if we prayed that God would make them famous in the law and faithful in marriage and abundant in good works? What if that became a way in which we worked and moved? That's my encouragement to us this morning. And I I want to kind of give a living illustration. I told Allison I would pick on her. 
Uh, Allison, why don't you come up? Allison uh, did the internship a little while back. And uh, Allison is just, for those of you that know her, it's no, um, no shock. She is just an amazing, amazing woman. And uh, as I've gotten to know her more, I have seen God just dramatically change the direction in which he was taking her. So when I first started to get to know Allison, she spent her summers off of, uh, off, like she'd go to Whitworth, and then the summers she'd spend with Shamu at SeaWorld. And, um, and it was awesome. She loved it. She saw science as kind of the future. And um, along the way, she started to ask the question, what if God has a different trajectory for me? And at one point, she kind of scarily like admitted the words like, what if God's calling me into vocational ministry? I don't know if I believe it, and I don't really think I'm capable of it, and I'm not, does that even sound like a good idea? This is, like, what, what should I do? And we started to pray. We started to discern. We started to speak about the ways in which she was leading on campus, the things that she was doing uh, with small group leaders, the impact she was having on other girls, she invested in and discipled, and it became clear to so many people that absolutely you should do this. And so she changed trajectory. She started to do master's work at Whitworth, and then she went, okay, an MA's good, but not good enough. I'm going for an MDiv, and I'm going to become a pastor. And she's going off to Princeton this fall, and uh, is totally changing the direction of her life. And I think it had to do with people around her that spoke into her and said, we believe in you. Like, we see amazing things in you. We know you're capable, you know? Like, all these things that I, I think God reveals to us and asks us to share. And so my encouragement to you would be to share those. Talk to somebody. Describe the ways in which the image of God is so evident in their life. And, and maybe even speak prophetic words over them that reorient their future. I'm going to pray now for Allison. I'm going to pray part of Ephesians chapter 1 for her. And then uh, I'll just pray a benediction over us as a community. God, we, um, again, are sad to see Allison take off and uh, to leave, to spend the summer working at a camp and then to go uh, this fall to Princeton and study. But we're also thrilled. We're thrilled for the kingdom, thrilled for the ways in which you're going to use her, the many ways that you've already blessed her and used her uh, here. And so, God, we as a community are behind her. We sense your calling in her life. We are committed to, to helping and supporting her in, in this journey. And, God, we ask that the eyes of her heart may be enlightened in order that she may understand the hope to which you have called her, the riches of your inheritance in the saints, and then your incomparably great power for her who believes. God, may you invest those things into her life in ways uh, that will change her experience at Princeton and beyond. May you use her, give her confidence in her giftings. May you prepare a, a space for her in ministry uh, when she graduates. And uh, God, may we be able to someday look at this journey and continue to look at it and be marvel at the way you work in us. And God, for new community, I ask that you would bless us, keep us, that you, Lord, would make your face shine upon us and be gracious to us. 
I ask that you would turn your face toward us and that you would give us peace. And we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great day.